David in the Old Testament. It's really difficult sometimes when you're thinking about what you're going to speak about on a Sunday morning. And I, I always sort of, I get quite nervous because I think, am I, am I listening to God? Am I picking the right thing? Or am I just doing something that I fancy speaking about? I am no expert on David. If anyone's done any kind of Old Testament Bible study, they probably know more about David than me. This is not going to be an in-depth discussion around David's life. The original idea came from the fact that this weekend, or the end of last week, was the 50th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And I was thinking about that and how he was a revered leader, charismatic, young. But perhaps not as perfect as maybe people thought, particularly at the time. Since his death, stories have come out and he had a bit of a wandering eye, shall we say. He was a bit of a one for the ladies. And David is perhaps a little bit like that. People think of King David and they think of David and Goliath and they think of how how great he was and what a great king he was and that's all true. But he had his own similar problems with the ladies. So that was my original idea and then I was sort of thinking about it and thinking is that just, is that a bit cheesy? Is that a bit of a cheesy link or a bit of a forcing a link or something, I'll keep praying about God, is this what you want me to speak about? And I was thinking, well actually, we're coming up to Christmas, and it would be good to talk about David and how, and how he's linked to Christmas. Okay. And then the best one of all, I thought, actually, it's coming up to Christmas, and I can talk about three kings, but not the three wise men. So there we go, that's why you're getting this, this morning. So David, who was he? He was a shepherd boy who became king. If you were pitching that as the idea for a film, someone would go, no, that's rubbish, nobody's going to go for that. A shepherd boy becomes king. Come on, stretching it a bit far there. How about shepherd boy becomes reasonably wealthy? Maybe owns a couple of sheep of his own. He was a mighty warrior who won many victories. And he was, I suppose, I don't, well, yeah, a singer-songwriter. A warrior poet, if you like. A writer of a great deal of the Psalms in the book of Psalms. And the reason why I've been using Psalms is the call to worship and the start of the prayer this morning, just to give me a bit of a link. But what do we know of David from the Bible? Well, he first comes up in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now, I'm sure you're all sitting there going, oh yes, I know that, yes, 1 Samuel 16, yes, yes, I remember what's happening there, yes, it's just after... King Saul has been denounced by God. 
The people of Israel had been crying out to God. They said, we want a king like everybody else. We're fed up with these judges that we've had. We want a king. We want to be like everybody else. Everyone else has got a king. Why can't we have one? Another link to Christmas there. Everyone else has got one. I want one too. So God said, fair enough. You want a king? You can have a king. And Saul was anointed to be the king of Israel. We've got these little... Oh, I've left them over there. We've got these little flashcard things that we got a long time ago from Walk Through the Bible. And if I'd remembered soon enough, I'd have scanned them to go in the PowerPoint, but I didn't. And they've got these funny little, you know, I don't know if you can see them very well, but that's Genesis. And it's got a big N because it's beginnings. There you go, that's the standard of them. <laughs> but these ones are great. You won't see it again very well, but there's a picture of a king standing on a beach and he's made a little horse instead of a sandcastle, but it's not a little horse, it's one sand mule. (laughs) And the king is holding a saw because he's Saul. And he has a heart with a line through it because he has no heart for God. Saul was not a good king. He started off all right, but too often he wanted to do his own thing. Samuel was around, he was a prophet, and he would quite often advise Saul and say, the Lord says do this, or the Lord says attack now, and he'll be with you. And then Saul would dither and go, I don't know, we don't know if we've got enough men. Or, or he would say, the Lord says, uh, in fact, the one that was the last straw for God, as it were, he said, go and wipe out that entire tribe. Every single one, all of them, don't leave anyone left. And Saul went along, uh, and, and even, even all their sheep and their goats and everything else, killed a lot. And Saul and his army went in, and they, they took the king captive, and they took the best of the flock, and they kept that. And Samuel arrived and said, didn't God tell you to wipe out everybody and everything? Ah, yeah, but they were nice sheep. They were pretty healthy looking and, and, yeah. And at that point, God said, look, I've had enough. I've had enough of Saul. Um, I'm not going to kill him, but I'm not going to let him carry on as as king. I'm not going to honor his family by letting them carry on as king. Go and find someone else, Samuel, and anoint them as king. Go to the house of Jesse and look at his sons, and I'll tell you which one to anoint. So in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel's rocked up at Jesse's house and Jesse's got these sons, big strapping lads. The first one comes out, yes, and Samuel thinks, oh, look at him. He looks, he looks big and tough. He'll make a great king. And God says, don't, don't look at outward appearances. I look at the heart. Don't be fooled by what he looks like. It's not in. The second one, the third one, the fourth one, right down to seven of the seventh one, all come out and every one God says to Samuel, no, it's not him. And so Samuel looks at Jesse and goes, have you got any other kids? Seven sons, you know, you don't have to have a spare one, do you? He says, well, as it happens, yes. There's, uh, there's the young lad. So uh, go and get him. So he was only a young lad. The Bible says he was ruddy-faced and handsome. He was perhaps a bit of a 
I suspect if, uh, if Samuel had been from Scotland, he might have looked at him and gone, hmm, he looks like a bit of a Jesse him. <laughs> but that was David. And when he came out, God said, yep, that's him. Anoint him to be my king. So he did. So he was the youngest of Jesse's eight sons. And he gets anointed as the future king of Israel. Which I think, when I was thinking about it, it's like, that's, that would be, that'd be quite exciting if someone came up to you and said, you're going to be the next king or queen. When this queen dies, you're going to take over the throne. Exciting on the one hand. On the other hand, you think, I'm not sure that's going to make me very popular with the rest of her family. I don't think Charles is going to be very pleased when I rock up going, God has told me that I'm going to be the next king. So where did David go next? Well, he actually, oh, yeah, there you go. It wasn't all plain sailing. He actually went to serve in the court of Saul. After, the Bible says, after God's spirit left him, Saul suffered from attacks of rage and he would get really worked up and really angry and nobody could calm him down. But David was actually gaining a bit of a reputation as a very good harp player. And so someone sent for him and said, see if, see if, see if his playing will calm the king down. And it did. So from then on, whenever Saul used to get a bit hit up, a bit angry, a bit... Arr, he would send for David and David would play for him and he would relax. The first chill out music. So there you go, there, you know, it's all ups and downs but that's definitely an up. You're now serving the king that you know that you're going to take over from. Maybe if you're being wise you haven't told him yet. But he likes you because you can calm him down. The next thing we hear about Samuel, and, sorry, in Samuel about David, is David and Goliath. A story that we've probably all heard many times, and I'm not going to go into it in detail, but David, trusting in God, kills the giant Goliath. And that makes him very popular with the king, obviously, and with the people. Things are still looking up. He becomes best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. Presumably someone who would have stood to inherit the throne. But they become really good friends. And there are several chapters of Samuel about how they help each other and, and Jonathan helps to look after David when the going gets rough. So that's an up. I said before, he's very popular with the people. He continues to win great victories. And the people are saying, he comes back from battles and the people are out in the streets singing, Saul has won, he has beaten thousands, but David has beaten tens of thousands. Good on the one hand, the people like him. On the other hand, Saul's now starting to get a wee bit knocked. He's not quite so keen on this fella. He becomes jealous but David's still winning victories God's still blessing him he marries Saul's daughter 
that's going to be a good thing. Saul gets even more jealous, even more afraid of him, and ultimately tries to kill him. That, that's a bit of a down thing. And David goes on the run. And Saul comes after him. So he's now the anointed future king of Israel being hunted down by the current king of Israel and hiding in caves and generally hiding out. At one point, Saul catches up with him. And God basically delivers Saul into David's hands. But David spares Saul's life. And you think, well, that's all right. Then Saul will probably forgive him and say, come back. But no, he still can't go home. He's still on the run. And Saul keeps coming after him. And once again, God delivers Saul into David's hands and David spares Saul's life. But he still can't go home. He ends up living amongst the Philistines. The Philistines are the people that David spent most of his time fighting on behalf of Saul. Goliath was a Philistine. There's a very interesting story about how David was allowed to marry Saul's daughter, which I won't go into here, but go look it up. The Philistines weren't very keen on David after that episode and generally weren't very keen on David full stop. But he ends up living amongst them. He ends up serving the king of the Philistines. But what he's actually doing is telling them that he's off to attack the Israelites and instead attacking border towns of the Philistines and being a bit of a double agent. The whole time, he knows he's been appointed, anointed as the future king of Israel. But he's now living amongst their greatest enemies. Eventually he does become king because Saul and Jonathan, his son, David's best friend, are killed in battle with the Philistines. He becomes the king of Judah first. At that time, the country that we know as Israel was split into two kingdoms, Israel to the north, where 10 of the original 12 tribes lived, and Judah to the south, where the other two lived. He became the king of Judah first, it split, and Saul's son, Ishbosheth was anointed the king of Israel. We're up to two sand mule. We've got a picture of David playing his harp, and he's got a, a complete heart. He doesn't have a heart with a line through it, because he was wholehearted for God. Ishbosheth is assassinated. He's king for eight years. And then he gets assassinated by supporters of David who think, if we get rid of this fella, David can be king of the whole lot. So they go off, they kill him, they come back, they tell David, we've killed the king of Israel. You can be the king now. What does David say? Yippee! Thank you! That's what I really wanted. No. He has them killed. Because they've gone against God's plan. Ishbosheth has been anointed king of Israel. 
As far as David was concerned, that meant he was God's chosen king of Israel. So he has them killed for assassinating God's chosen king. And perhaps because of that, the elders of Israel, the government if you like, come to Judah and ask David to be their king too. So David becomes king of Israel and Judah. Sometimes you'll hear that referred to as the United Kingdom of Judah and Israel. Which gets a bit confusing when you start reading books and they start talking about the United Kingdom and you think, I don't remember doing this bit in history. So that's the areas we're talking about. We've got, that's roughly the area that Israel covers now. And the red area to the north of the Dead Sea and around the Sea of Galilee and as far up as Damascus, which is in modern-day Syria, was Israel. So that's the area that Ishbosheth was king of for eight years, whilst David was the king of that purple bit below Judah, slightly smaller bit, with Jerusalem. And then after Ishbosheth was killed and David became king, he was the king of the whole lot. What was he like as a king? He captured Jerusalem from the Jebusites. When the people came out of wandering around the desert in Exodus and they were, they were taken to the promised land, they'd never actually quite been able to get rid of the tribe that were around Jerusalem. They'd, li- they'd, they'd lived around Jerusalem, but the, the actual fortress of Jerusalem was still held by the Jebusites. And actually when David goes to attack it, they said, You'll never get in here, fella. We could defend this place with our weakest soldiers. This is an impenetrable fortress. You might as well give up now. But David says, no, it's all right. I've got, I've got God with me. And they crept up the well and got in that way. So David moved his capital from Hebron to Jerusalem. He defeated the Philistines yet again. And he brings the Ark of the Covenant, which had been in a small town on the border from, since the Philistines had given it back because bad things kept happening to them and they didn't want it anymore. And he brings it into Jerusalem because they're going to settle now. They're no longer going to wander around. And that's where we pick up our first Bible reading. The first reading is taken from 2 Samuel, chapter 7, reading from verses 1 to 17, and it's God's promise to David. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a place of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. 
Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelled in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them any more, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you and will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build my house. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, when I removed him, removed from whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Amen. Thank you, Maggie. So David's plans to build a temple, to put the ark in, have been thwarted by God, who says... Nope, that's not your job. But at the same time, God makes a covenant with David, a promise between the two of them. David will be succeeded by his son, who's not yet been born. That son will be the person who will build the temple in Jerusalem. The throne won't be taken from them, even though their sins will deserve punishment. David had seen what happened to Saul, that God withdrew his favor, and that's why his house, his line, didn't continue. The throne passed to David's family, and God's saying, no matter what happens, 
your son won't lose the throne. He goes further, he goes on, God goes on to promise that David's house, David's family, his throne and his kingdom shall be established forever. That's quite an encouraging bit of news really, isn't it? Don't build the temple because I want your son to build it and that royal family, if you like, will carry on forever and that kingdom will be established forever. I think in terms of sort of good news, bad news, good news sandwich kind of thing, that's, that's not bad really, is it? There's good news and there's bad news. The bad news is you're not building the temple, the good news is all that. So it's a lot of good news. What's the rest of David's life like then? You would think with all that, he'd say, fantastic, I will be faithful to God, God is being faithful to me. And by and large he does. But he is just a man. So he continues to defeat his enemies, God continues to bless him in battle and give him victories. In two sand meal, eight and ten. Then he spots Bathsheba having a bath on the roof. And his eye wanders. That's an entire sermon on its own. Probably an evening service as well, sometime after the watershed. (laughs) But God punishes him for it. Because he's done wrong. He deserves to be punished. He is punished. He accepts his punishment. In fact, the psalm that I used as the, the prayer was the psalm that David wrote after Nathan, the prophet, had come to him and said, God's slightly not happy with you. You need to be punished. And actually out of that, Solomon is born to David and Bathsheba. And when we move on into 1 Kings, towards the end of his life, David anoints Solomon to be the next king. Solomon wasn't his oldest son, so he wouldn't have been the one that would ordinarily have inherited the throne, but David decided to choose him to be the king after him. David's reign kind of went downhill as he got older and his family got a bit out of hand, shall we say. One of his sons rebelled against him and started a civil war. That's, that's slightly out of hand. Uh, and all sorts of other things happened, again, which could all be a, a complete series of sermons on their own. But I encourage you to read about it because it's actually quite easy. Some of the Old Testament books we sometimes think, oh, they're difficult to read. Oh, I don't know. But actually, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, a lot of that is just like reading history books. So I know how much you're all going to love that. But it's interesting stuff. And after 32 years as the king of the United Kingdom of Israel and Judah, (coughs) taking him to 40 years as king of Judah in in total, 
David dies. And the throne passes to Solomon. One king's in my little flashcards. He's got a crown with a one on it, so you know it's one king's. Nothing as cheesy as sand mules for one king's. Uh, And a picture of Solomon. And Solomon's got a heart that's half red, half black. Because he was only half-heartedly for God. I'm not going to go into massive detail now about what Solomon did or anything like that. But Solomon was the heir that was promised in the, in the promise from God. Solomon built the temple. And Solomon had sons who carried on after him. Now this picture is slightly confusing. The bit at the top is Israel and the bit at the bottom is Judah. Solomon was the king of Israel and Judah, the United Kingdom. But when he died, his son Rehoboam took over and wasn't very good. To the point that Israel rebelled again, said, we're not having him, he's useless. We'll have one of Solomon's other sons, Jeroboam, to be our king. If you can see the the little lines in the background, the green line for Israel and the blue line for Judah. That's the spiritual state of the relative countries. Israel had a succession of bad kings who did not follow God, who subsequently took the country and the people further and further away from God and further and further into worshipping the false idols of the countries around to the point where when Hosea was king the Assyrians invaded and completely wiped out a lot of them. They kind of assimilated them into their own religions and what had been what we would call the Jewish faith of the people of Israel got all mixed up with the other faiths around about. And an interesting side note is that the capital of Israel, when they split, was Samaria. And the people were known as Samaritans. And when you read about the good Samaritan and the the way the Samaritans are regarded in the New Testament, in the time of Jesus, one of the reasons why they were so disliked is because effectively they were relatives, but they hadn't been able to keep the faith. The blue line for Judah is a bit more interesting. It goes up and down and up and down, but it is gradually going down. There is a downward trend there. And that's because Judah had a succession of kings. Some were good, some weren't so good. They would have a good king and then he would die and the new king would come in and he would start to dabble in the worship of the other gods around about and the country would go into decline and then he would die and then another king would come along and go, hang on a minute, this isn't right, we need to get back to God. It wasn't quite as one of one and one of the other as that. But eventually the country declined and the Babylonians came and took the people off into exile. It's interesting because when the Assyrians attacked Israel, I'm trying to remember, 
That was when Hezekiah was king. So that's just at the bottom of one of these downward bits and then it goes up. Because Hezekiah realized what was happening and dragged the people back to worshiping God. And and God protected them from the Assyrians. When the Babylonians came and took them into exile, what that meant was that their faith was kept intact. They were moved almost wholesale from Judah into Babylon and they became almost like a little Jewish enclave within Babylon. And they kept the faith. And it actually made them think about what it meant to be the people of God. And when eventually the Persians overrun the Babylonians, King Zerubbabel came back to Judah. He's not on that list, but he was a descendant. So that royal family survived the exile in Babylon and came back to Judah. And now we get our thrilling second reading. You're going to love this one. It's a doozy. I'll do my best. The second reading is Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17. The genealogy of Jesus. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amadab, Amadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jeroam. Jeroam, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. 
After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who we call Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. Fantastic. <coughs> Tell you what, you got, if, if you don't remember this for anything else, this service, you'll remember it for two of the longest hymns you've ever sung and then the longest, most boring but brilliantly read Bible reading. Because it's dead easy, isn't it? When you, I mean, I've been reading... Samuel and Kings, and then you get to Chronicles, and it's, it's another book which is lists of names of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, and he was the father of so-and-so, and to be honest, you just go, yeah, okay, right, where's the, where's the next bit? But actually, one of the things I found when I, was, when I was finding out a bit more about this, a lot of the accounts, like a lot of the rest of the Bible, what we have now as the Bible has come from a variety of sources. And what they often say is, when you get the lists of so-and-so was this and they did that, those are the bits that are often the oldest and most reliable sources. Now, Matthew obviously was writing this because he wanted to explain who Jesus was and what Jesus' line was. And it's easy, isn't it, to... I want to read the Christmas story, so I'm going to skip that bit of lists of unpronounceable names. And let's get to the good bit about the kings and the sheep and the donkey and the third shrimp, or whatever it is in love, actually. But it's really important because what it shows us isn't just a list of people but where Jesus comes from. It's become really popular of late, hasn't it? To to look up your family tree and work out, you know, who do you think you are, basically. It's the first ever edition of who do you think you are, (laughs) Jesus. And there are two accounts of Jesus' lineage. There's that one, and there's another one in Luke chapter 3, which I'm sure you're all going to now go home and read, because you'll be dead keen to read it because you think I've, I've really enjoyed listening to Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 to 17 I want to read the other one 
I want to see the other one. Because it's different. You think that can't be right? One person surely has one set of ancestors. And I'm not going to go into the details of it. And Rachel's pulling faces at me at the back. When you do read it and you go, it's different, it must be a mistake. The Bible's contradicting itself again. What most scholars say, and I'm not one of them, I've read what the rest of them say, is the one we've just read is the line, I'm waiting for Rachel to pull a face at me when I get it wrong, is the line of Jesus through Joseph, and the one in Luke is the line of Jesus through Mary. So not only was Mary, sorry, was Joseph, get it right, the other one, Jesus, <laughs> the slightly important one, not only was Jesus linked to David through his dad, in inverted commas, but he was linked to Jesus through his mum. It's linked to David even, through his mum. I'm going to have to stop soon. <laughs> Aren't you glad? Jesus is the fulfilment of God's promise to David. That line that we saw that Felicity fantastically read to us went right through all those people. They were all in there, mostly. There's a reason why a couple of them are missing. We won't go into that either. From David through Solomon, right through to the exile and out the other side and right through to Jesus. There we go. I knew I'd written it somewhere. I was looking for it on my notes and it's on my slides. There we go. So you're sitting there going, oh, yeah, that was thoroughly interesting, Andy. I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed my ancient history lesson. It's a blank slide. But what's the point? I mean, history's all right for academics. But what difference does it make when I'm pulling my crackers, carving the turkey, wearing a funny hat and reading a joke that makes about as much sense as some of the stuff I come out with. Next time you're singing Once in Royal David City, remember God's enduring faithfulness. Throughout all that time, you can imagine David would have told Solomon, this is what God's promised. This is what you're going to fulfill. This is what Solomon would have told. I'm going to get it wrong now. Rehoboam. And you can imagine all the way through the, hist the family, there'd be this story of this promise of God and they'd all be going, well, okay. When they got carried off into exile, there are lots of Psalms where and, and readings where the, the people in exile are saying, don't forget us, God. Don't forget us when we're away from, from your holy land. And God didn't. So remember God's enduring faithfulness. A promise made 14 genera sorry, 28 generations earlier and fulfilled in Jesus. Remember the promise made to a shepherd boy turned king. 
coming to fulfillment in a cowshed with the birth of a baby, the Lamb of God, the Good Shepherd, the King of Kings. The next time you're wondering if God's forgotten about you, the next time you remember a promise that God made to you that doesn't seem to have been fulfilled yet, think about all those generations of people that wondered if this promise that God made to David would ever come to fulfillment. Remember the three kings from the beginning. Saul with his sand mule with no heart. No heart for God. Not actually no heart. David wholehearted for God. Solomon wise highly regarded as a good king only half a heart for God. Which are you? Are you wholehearted for God? If you're being really honest, are you sometimes only half-hearted for God? Or do you have no heart for God? What's your heart condition this morning? Whole heart, no heart, half heart.